This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, this is Sonal, and on the podcast today, we're talking about if artificial intelligence can be creative. That all due to a project where a symphony of Beethoven was completed using AI. We're going to also be talking about actors that went above and beyond for their roles. That's all due to Lady Gaga's latest film, House of Gucci, and everything she had to do to get into character. Plus, Chris is joined in extra time by ex-Newcastle defender Stephen Taylor, talking about what makes a great manager and all about the latest moves in football. The Offscript Podcast. Today, we're talking about something a little bit different. We're talking about artificial intelligence and its ability to create. Because usually when you think of AI, you think of certain automated processes, algorithms, something more technical and functional. You kind of think the one thing they can't take from us, the robots, artificial intelligence, they can't take our creativity. Our originality. Right? Mm -hmm. That is just something that is off limits. It's off guard. They, They can't compete with us on that level. Well... Maybe that's not the case, because there's a story that I saw in The Guardian today about Ida, a very realistic robot, which was invented by Aidan Meller. This is in Oxford. And Ida is the first humanoid robot artist that gave a public performance of poetry that she wrote. No. I'm not sure why she has a gender, but that she wrote using her algorithms in celebration of the Italian poet Dante. And we've got a little clip of this. Let's have a little listen. I wept silently. Taking in the scene, I wept because they had lost something, took for granted. My sight, eyes wide open. We looked up from our verses like blindfolded captives, sent out to seek the light, but it never came. I'm with Robbie on this. We all need to move to Canada. <laughs> because I am listening to that Sona Rabani. That frightens me. That is mental. I mean, I don't know. I listen to that and I think that doesn't sound like great poetry. But oh, You're but, not critiquing her poetry, I for mean, goodness sake. I don't know. I just, But to be fair, poetry in general sometimes washes over me like a bit yeah, of... A I bit just, maybe I just don't... I'm not sophisticated or cultured enough really to get uh, truly, poetry and appreciate you know it. any of your friends who will sit down by the pool... <laughs> And read, read a bit of poetry. You know what? Here we go. Straw poll, 4001, own up to it. Does anyone out there on a Friday forgo the brunches, forgo just the, the life that is Dubai to sit down and read poetry? I'm intrigued. 4001. Yeah, well, you know, according to the person that created this robot, that Meller says that Ida's ability to imitate human writing is so great, if you read it, you wouldn't know that it wasn't written by a human. I don't know. I personally think that's debatable, but this isn't the first use of AI for creativity and art that we've come across, because actually just a little bit earlier this year, in October, just about a month or so ago, there was a project, a performance, Beethoven X AI. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It was an incomplete Beethoven um, composition that was completed, essentially, filled in using artificial intelligence. I caught up with Matthias Roder, who was the director of this particular project. And Ludwig van Beethoven's Unfinished Symphony was given this AI treatment. So here's the thing. Before we get into this interview, I want to see if you can tell the difference. I've got three very short, just roughly 10 to 15 second clips here for you. Three of them, right. I want you to identify oh. the real Beethoven and the AI Beethoven. Okay. There's only one AI Beethoven, of course, so actually you're identifying the one that is not real. 
Okay, so from the three clips, how many of them are Beethoven? Are, are you telling You've me You've got that? two authentic, real Beethoven clips. I've got to find the You've got to find the artificial intelligence okay. filled in one. At this point, I just want to point out that classical music is not my forte. <laughs> Go for it. You might surprise yourself. Okay. Let's see what you get. And obviously play along in your cars and see if you can identify. Four, this is clip number one. Zero, zero, one, if you are playing along at home. Okay. That's AI. Okay, all right. Let's right. see the second one. That's got beauty. Okay. That's Beethoven. That's Beethoven, okay. I think. All right. Right, so no, I'm going to say AI is clip one. Okay. And Beethoven is two and three. Okay. You know, I'm going to let that sit. I'm okay. going to give our listeners a moment to guess before right, we give I'm, away the answer. But I'll give you the answer in, in a few minutes. If I'm right about this, I'll be so delighted. Okay. I'm going to try not to say anything right now okay, and just fine. move on with this story. Now, of course, the composer died in 1827. He left his last symphony. It would have been his 10th incomplete. Now, he just wasn't able to finish, essentially. He left behind some basic musical sketches. There wasn't really that much to go off of what he was planning. And fans, different music experts have always thought, oh, what a pity. You know, we have these early starts to a new composition, but we'll never really know what it was going to be. So people took up the mantle, decided to take on this project, see if they could find a way to complete something off the basis of his style, mm -hmm. off the basis of some of those early sketches of what he was planning, what the Tenth Symphony could have sounded like. Now, I asked Matthias to give me a little bit of a background on this story. What really remained? What were they working with? So Beethoven used to work on two symphonies at the same time. He did that quite often. And uh, so when he was composing the Ninth Symphony, he was also working on a Tenth. But finishing the Ninth took a lot of time and energy. And uh, when he was done with the Ninth, he didn't uh, continue working on the Tenth. And so we are left with about 40 to 50 uh, sketches for that uh, symphony that are, you know, in various uh, stages of completion. And um, this is the material that we used in this project. We were looking at all of these sketches in, in a series of workshops. We've spoken with um, experts on the topic. And when you look at the final product, in the end, we use about um, 10 to 20 of these musical ideas of Beethoven in our completion. And um, it makes up 5% of the overall work. And the rest is uh, then the product of um, what the AI came up with and, and what we as experts were working with. So they ended up performing this to mark the 250th anniversary of his birth. And this was work that premiered during Beethoven Fest on October 9th, 2021. Beethoven Fest. Yeah. So you heard there that only 5% was off the basis of the sketches that he left behind. The rest was all filled in by AI. And so they had a group of musicologists, composers, computer scientists to analyze it and learn Beethoven's style so that they can complete the unfinished symphony. We'll figure out exactly how they did that using AI. Uh, yeah, so we put you to the test and you made a point of saying number two had a real artistry to it. That, that was absolutely 
Beethoven. No. Now, Ibrahim was with you. He guessed number one. James said two was the AI. Um, no name on this one, but I think AI is number two. And you can enjoy brunches and poetry, yeah. one of our listeners <laughs> pointing out. Sure you can. It was, in fact, the number two one. And let's hear a little extended clip now of the Beethoven X AI symphony. I really don't know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> when you listen to that, I'm guessing. What is the difference? Yeah, I mean, to be brutally I honest. think that's the whole point is that you can't really tell the difference. Um, a lot of messages coming in as well because you brought up poetry and who's actually listening to poetry. Somebody out there says my friend in Oz does oh. just sit there and reads a bit of poetry now and then. Uh, meanwhile, another listener, no name on this, says poetry has no purpose in modern life. Hated it at school. I understand why my kids detest it at school yeah, now. I'm kind of with you on that front. But hey, each to their own, as I always say on the show. Yeah. Now, let's get back to this really quick. Because what's the reaction when you take this to the orchestra and also an audience yeah. and you say, OK, this is about 5 percent Beethoven. We've looked to, look to imitate his style and a machine has essentially written this piece. When we first gave the music to the musicians of the Beethoven Orchestra in Bonn, you know, it wasn't smooth sailing. Because in an orchestra of 100 people, you know, there are some people who are maybe not so happy with the idea of playing something that comes from a machine. Uh, and others were excited about it. So um, it was a process, I would say. In the end, when we first performed it in front of a, a real audience of, you know, um, music lovers, it was an amazing moment. Really, the, um, the orchestra um, has so much power and uh, it gets under your skin and you get goosebumps. And it's really like any other piece piece of music, I would say. It has the power to move you emotionally. We can be moved by, by music that comes from a machine. And that, I think, is, is something special. I was, I was really uh, taken aback by one of the uh, comments that a, a particularly young person made, um, maybe, maybe about 10, 12 years old, I don't know. Um, she said, well, you know, this was amazing, but now can't you uh, use the AI to go back to the other symphonies that Beethoven wrote and make them more interesting? And I was like, whoa, that is a very different perspective on, on these pieces uh, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't find that in a normal symphony orchestra audience. I should also say there were people who were skeptical and who di didn't like it. And, and they, they criticized certain moments in the piece. And often, actually, they criticized those parts that came directly from Beethoven's sketches themselves. It's because it's not authentic. There is something to be said for that. It's not. If a computer is developing it, yeah. it's, there is something that's not... You know, it's not as warm. It's not as, as beautiful if it's coming from an individual. Well, I think it's just a matter of perspective, right? It's like some people are going to dig it and some people aren't. Some people are going to think it's kind of cool and special yeah, that we figured out how to do this. And other people, like you said, are going to think the artistry is coming from the fact that it's coming from a human. Yeah, exactly. And we did talk a little bit about our, is AI going to take our jobs? Because once again, we think of automation, you think of more routine jobs. You don't think of creative jobs. And he pointed out that the way that AI composes is similar in a sense to how humans compose. 
suppose. But AI is always focused on a very particular aspect of something. So it might take a melody and continue the melody, mm. but it can't see the overall form and structure and create that, for example. It doesn't know how to express feeling. If you take a doctor, for example, instead of spending time reading CAT scans, maybe you'll have artificial intelligence doing that for you, but you'll have more time to spend with patients. So he said it's going to change the way we work, not necessarily take our jobs. That's oh, his view on it. Are you still going to have jobs in the next couple of years? I don't know if we'll have jobs regardless of AI in the that's, next couple of years, that's, Chris. That's a whole other question. I might just lose this voice entirely and I might have to diversify in life. Anyone that's got any job openings, do let me know. <laughs> the Offscript Podcast. We're talking all things House of Gucci. Yeah, let me ask, have you had any curiosity about this film? Because we've got a little bit of a trailer oh, to see do. if we can whet people's appetites oh, and see oh. if there is any interest in seeing this particular Ridley Scott feature. Gucci. It was a name that sounded so sweet, so seductive. Come meet the family. Hey everybody, this is Patrizia, and this is my family. They had it all. Wealth, style, power. Who wouldn't care for that? Is that a convincing accent to you? No. Because <laughs> I hear honest. that, and there's just something a little too over the top about it. It reminds me of somebody who's trying to be like a female vampire in a film. <laughs> like, I am from Transylvania. Yeah, that's, you know? that's not all about it. <laughs> that's kind of how it feels to me. What you're saying is... Ridley Scott should have picked up the phone for, to you <laughs> and you could have played Patrizia. I'm just saying that's my reading of it. It feels a little bit overly performative, Correct. perhaps, but I could be mistaken. What do I know about the Italian accent? Nothing at all, right? Um, they, there was an article to, to say that even though Gucci itself had nothing to do with this film, uh, sales uh, for them, searches at least for Gucci closing were up 70% week on week. 250% for their bags as well. Wow. So it's definitely been something that has shown the spotlight on Gucci. And it's all about Hollywood's telling of Patrizia Reggiani. She hired a hitman in 1995 to kill her ex-husband, Maurizio Gucci, who was the former head of the label. And uh, this was something that Lady Gaga just went above and beyond for. She claimed that she lived as Reggiani for a year and a half. She spoke with that thick Italian accent for nine months. She said, I never broke. I stayed with her. She didn't actually meet um, Reggiani herself, which Reggiani had criticized to yeah. say she should have come down and met me. Now, Lady Gaga, not standing back from that, says nobody was going to tell me who Patrizia Gucci was, not even Patrizia oh, Gucci. Oh, my Lord. But yeah, again, I don't know if I'm um, Can that, I just say, she said that she lived as Reggiani for a year and a half. Was she not in the Friends reunion? I didn't see her <laughs> pretend, pretend, pretend. Was she, though? I don't remember that. Yeah, she was. She, she was. played with Lisa Cadreau. She came in and... Oh, um, yes, that's right. She played. It Smelly was so clap. awkward. Uh, yeah, that was super... That was my least favourite part uh, of it. I mean, James Corden was up there as well. Yeah. I mean, why was he in it? I just still don't really get that. But, yeah, she was in that, and I did not see her. As Patrizia Reggiani. <laughs> she did not sing Smelling Cat in, an, no. in a thick Italian no, accent. she did not. So she's having Vogue on there in November's edition I'm, of Vogue. I'm curious about the film. It's gotten mixed reviews. I mean, Adam so Driver, I, who I'm a fan of, is in that, of course. Al Pacino is in this film. So it does have a star-studded cast. It but does. But I'm curious it. about it. Tentatively I will, curious. I will go and see it. I mean, Sir Ridley Scott as well, a man who's helmed some of the very best movies that have been created, not just of our generation, of any generation. So I will probably see it. Obviously, it mixes for me two of my passions, film. And yes, of course, it's based on a true story. Therefore, there's a lot of there's crime. There's. I thought you were going to say style and fashion. No. 
Come on, some of them are funny. <laughs> look at what I'm wearing today. What did you say that I look like today, Sonia? You're all, you're all buttoned up like a schoolboy going to church today. That's it, yeah. I'm whiter than white today. I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to just stick. Does it suit me or should I? I know it works, but you know when the collar has a button mm-hmm. and that button is actually done up as well? Yeah. You're literally as buttoned up as yeah. possible right now. Yeah, it's a look, Sonia Bunny, so I will continue to roll with it. <laughs> if, is that a thumbs up? I don't know. I'm none the wiser. No, I like it. I like it. It's a thumbs up from Jency. Love yeah. it, Jency thumbs down from producer Rog. If Robbie was here, it would probably be a thumbs down as well. But you saying that, so she lived, and this is Lady Gaga's Patrizia, for a year and a half, and it got us thinking, because we've spoken a lot on the show about the lengths that actors will go in order to, I guess, provide the perfect performance. They Mm. want to channel their inner kind of characters. They want to make sure their portrayal is as believable as possible. Exactly. And we hear from time to time, I think Christian Bale is the one that stands out. He's first and foremost, isn't he? When you think of physically how much he's transformed. The pianist. It was. I think it was the pianist. Was it Machinist? The Machinist. The pianist was Adrian Brody, and we'll get to him in just a second. I want, though, Robert De Niro, one of his most incredible performances was this one. Why are you doing? Why? You're so stupid. You're so stupid. You're going to be an animal. I'm not an animal. I'm not an animal. Oh, you want to treat me like this? I'm not that bad. So now that is Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. Okay, he plays Jake Lamotta, the Italian middleweight boxer, in that movie. He's portraying Jake. And it's amazing when you read the lengths that Robert De Niro went to in order to make his portrayal that much more convincing. He sat at the feet of Jake LaMotta, okay? He even participated in three fights in the ring himself and he gained 50 pounds on his then skinny frame to portray the fact that Jake LaMotta went up in weight. So there's a man piling on the pounds, not unique. We see a lot of actors do that. Not only that, incredible performance. Uh, He actually uh, tried his best to punch his head. He punched his way out of a jail cell. He's a guy that is just, he embodied Jake LaMotta. Spent time with him and knew what it took to essentially be him. I think I remember reading as well that whoever the director of that um, movie was said he actually was a good enough boxer in his own right after all that training that he could have chosen to go into professional boxing. And that's exactly it. Now, I wasn't aware of this today until reading up on this. Well uh, well known uh, for his uh, portrayal in uh, Taxi Driver, the movie starring Jodie Foster, a young Jodie Foster. He went out and he worked 12-hour shifts as a real New York cabbie. What I didn't know, and this blew my mind, in Cape Fear, he plays a psychopath uh, stalker in Cape Fear. It's a phenomenal movie. I watched it probably a little too young and I was frightened by it. What he did was he paid a dentist to grind down his teeth in order to play that role. Oh, my goodness. And he isn't the only one to do that. No, you can't grind down your teeth. You can't just eat that or diet that back into shape. Right, but he's not the only one to do it. Because Jamie Foxx, of course, one of his, you could argue one of his greatest performances was as blind musician Ray Charles and Ray. He, of course, won his first Academy Award. And what he did was he would glue his eyes shut (gasps) for up to 14 hours a day during filming. Okay, he's obviously playing Ray Charles. Ray Charles was blind. So Jamie 
would glue his eyelids shut for 14 hours a day. He lost 30 pounds. That was to actually convey what Charles's body looked like after substance abuse as he went through. And following in De Niro's footsteps, Fox also had a cosmetic dentist chip his teeth to resemble that of the musician. That blows my mind. That is unbelievable. To go to a dentist. Because you think you don't have to go to a dentist. There's going to be somebody in costumes who can give you a little dental mold, right? I think. Just um, not authentic enough not authentic for these guys. For these guys. Question, Sonal. Have you ever gone above and beyond for a job? I've, I do have recollections of, in general, finding myself in situations. When I used to work in Abu Dhabi, of, of thinking, how, how am I here? But I can't, like, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm, I can't think of a specific example. But you? Uh, for me, it's, uh, I did not expect to, to be having to console the baddest man on the planet <laughs> in the shape of Mike Tyson. It's a story that I've told countless times on this show. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that was very much more than I bargained for, having to lean over and give the big man a big hug, essentially, <laughs> to get him through our little Q&A on stage. Uh, that's up there. I know Robbie's one. He was made to dress up, essentially, as a Matrix character for an event. I think of this all the time. If you show up at an event to MC and somebody just hands you a trench coat and asks you to be Agent Smith, I mean, you you go, no, 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 no. We didn't discuss this, right? This no, not Rob. Not in the original offer letter. No, Rob just says, all right, then. <laughs> I will Pops do Pops on that trench coat. On goes those glasses. I would pay some serious cash to get the footage of said <laughs> press conference. I mean, we've seen the photo. The photo is pretty epic as well. We should really stick it up. The pow, pow, pow video is still <laughs> with me. I did uh, watch that a couple of times over the weekend. <laughs> just when I'm down, just watch Robbie Greenfield and his little dalliance with TikTok. Finally, though, and thankfully, he did see the light and he has moved on. Now, I was doing my research today. Rooney Mara, are you a fan of the Mara sisters? I'm not familiar. So Rooney Mara stars in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She is with Joaquin Phoenix. And then, what's the other one called? Begins with a K. The other sister, she's married to Jamie Bell. Okay. She was in House of Cards. Oh, okay. Okay, two fantastic actors. Fantastic. Rooney Mara, though, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, alongside Daniel Craig. Now, she plays the punk hacker Lisbeth Salander, okay? She bleached her eyebrows. She chopped off her hair. She had her eyebrow, uh, eyebrow, her lip, and her nose all pierced. That's in addition to learning martial arts, skateboarding, and motorcycle riding. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. Like, I mean, that kind of transformation sounds like you'd, you'd be, be you'd just be playing fantasy a little bit, you you'd know? Be down with that. Forrest Whitaker, fan of Forrest. Of course. Fantastic actor, of course. He played, uh, didn't he, uh, Eddie Amin mm -hmm. in uh, Last King of Scotland alongside James McAvoy. Now, for this, again, this is mental. He recalls he actually uh, put on a 30-pound weight gain to fully embody the larger-than-life Amin for that 2006 movie. Forrest Whitaker learned to speak Swahili and play the accordion. Take a listen. And I want to promise you, this will be a government of action, not of life. I mean, that movie is incredible. Yeah. If you haven't seen The Last King of Scotland, I suggest you get on it. His portrayal of Idi Amin, it's 
remarkable. I love that he did his research as well because he spent three and a half months in Uganda before shooting the movie. Actually interviewed people of Amin's immediate family, victims, ranking members of the regime as well. Really got into the mind and understood how it worked. Amazing. Now I want to finish on Adrian Brody, the pianist we spoke about earlier. Again, research for this. He dropped 30 pounds uh, to play uh, the character in The Pianist. He also taught himself to play piano specifically wow. for the role. He taught himself piano. There's also 30 pounds. He doesn't have 30 pounds no, to lose, does he? he absolutely doesn't. He's a slight guy, yeah. is Adrian Brony. This mental, though, he put his money where his mouth was. He showed up to set with only one bag and a piano after giving up his apartment, selling his car, disconnecting his phone. <laughs> and this is mental. Needless to say, his girlfriend, she actually finished with him. She said, I'm done. I mean, you know, we take it for granted, but that would be a tough thing to go through with somebody. If you're not involved in that role, yeah. it'd be hard to understand why you need to go to such lengths. Correct. Imagine dating an actor yeah. who was a method actor. Right. You've got to be a chameleon as well, I guess. You know, if they're off to Italy, in the case of Daniel Day-Lewis, I think he spent time in Italy as a shoemaker for one of his roles. I mean, if they're just immersing themselves in this, in a lot of ways, it must be the most difficult thing ever to have a relationship with these guys and gals. Yeah, I can imagine. Going along for that ride, you really have to know what you're getting into. Yeah, you absolutely do. The Off Script Podcast. Stephen Taylor. Steve, great to have you back in. Thanks for having me back. Uh, you've been a busy boy. You've been back over in Newcastle. Of course, the, the club that's still home, the club that you made your name for. How is it? How is... Well, how is Tyneside? I think everybody's excited with the new ownership. I think that's the uh, first and foremost for everybody there when you go back. Good feel factor, yeah. I think, around the place. Obviously, everyone's happy. Mike Ashley's gone. New ownership has come in here now. Uh, big plans. But everybody understands it's not going to happen overnight. I think you can see the atmosphere. Yes, we got beat the first game at uh, St. James Park with the new ownership. Yeah. But it was the feel-good factor of everyone back in there. The atmosphere is unbelievable. It's obviously been difficult past few weeks results haven't gone our way but next few games I think with Norwich and uh, Burnley but two home games there we need maximum points and I think listen it's going to be a tough uh, ride it's coming at the end of the season it's going to be a massive one make no mistake about it and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this you, you boys you are in a relegation battle right I mean forget the fact that you are quote unquote the richest team on the planet Newcastle United all those riches they will come maybe in January certainly at the end of the season you've got to make sure you're a Premier League team for that though the pressure's on. I think everybody's going to look at Newcastle, the big ownership, the money, the richest club in the world. Everyone will keep focusing on that and they're going to keep playing on it. And it's down to the players now to, uh, first and foremost, they're playing for a lot of contracts. New management coming in here now. You know, there's a lot of the players, the sort of players who Eddie Howe wants. Yeah. Possibly not. He's inherited that group of players now. And what you have to understand in this relegation battle, which we are in, it's not about playing pretty football. It's finding a way to win. And sometimes you've got to win ugly. And I think, obviously, Eddie Howe's coming now. And yes, he wants to play good football, attractive football to entertain the crowd. But I've been in that situation with Steve McLaren. He came in, he's he seen what the crowd want, what the city wanted. They want to be exciting on the front foot, keeping possession, something that the club hadn't done in many years. Yeah. And when he was getting us to play, yes, we'd have a lot of possession, a lot of possession in our own heart, but we weren't hurting teams. And it's going to be very difficult. Find that fine lining of overplaying, yeah. trying to attract and, and entertain oh is the, is the fans happy listen the fans will be happy if we win a game you win the game three points everyone's happy you've seen some of the results this weekend managers haven't had results they've got a draw we'll talk about Brighton you know the fans booing, booing. they're lying eight in the Premier League I know you know that's, you're looking at Brighton 
I think the manager even said after the game that does he need a history lesson on yeah. Brighton of Albion we look I about Newcastle United for us and Firma we just need to get results back to back wins next few games get on a bit of momentum the feel factor around the fans they're going to play a big part for us you know. Eddie Howe Steve talk to me I mean as a Newcastle fan as you're, you're a Newcastle man through and through happy with Eddie I've, I've seen a lot said I think Simon Jordan on TalkSport over in the UK said wait a minute have Newcastle not missed a trick here Steve and Jenner now are Aston Villa two wins from two in their two matches now admittedly I think Aston Villa have got a stronger squad than Newcastle didn't need much there Dean Smith did a wonderful job but have Newcastle missed a trick not trying to lure don't want to be disrespectful to Eddie this is only my view as Stephen Gerrard a, a strength of personality I think in actual fact you sat in that very chair saying Stephen Gerrard would be my man for that job with the names that were getting touted out there was Brendan Rodgers getting mentioned yeah. there was all these kind of you know the foreign manager getting mentioned I think at the time with Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, because they would understand the culture in Newcastle. I do think Eddie Howe understands the culture in Newcastle, hence why I think he wants that front foot football. You know, getting, I think the first game, five, six players in the box all the time. He wanted it entertaining. And it was. The amount of chances we created, it was over 20 chances created in the game. The fans actually left there bit happy and excited from the game for a long time because I think what Eddie's now got is a lot of uh, you know, Rafa's and, and, and Steve Bruce's kind of defensive mentality yeah. you know sitting back and soaking up the pressure you can only do that for so long you know we're involved in a relegation battle we're going to have to start taking the game to teams and when you especially at home games I remember Bobby Robson used to always say listen win your home draw your way you're in Europe and that was our mentality as players we understood that and that, I remember going away to Wigan and you got Gary Speed we'll take the draw we'll get, in the, we'll get in the bus we'll go back to Newcastle home game next week we'll win that one and that was the mentality that was driven into us as players now I would love to see how Eddie's obviously getting the boys to do that for me it's first and foremost take advantage of the crowd that we're going to yeah. have there week in week out teams you know coming to St James Park they don't want to come up there they've got to make that a fortress again they've got to find that you know the feel good factor with the boys confident getting the players confident again is the biggest thing forget about ability it's about confidence and effort what about Eddie? I know you went back. When were you back in Newcastle? A couple of weeks ago? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago. You did an event with the club and, and it was a who's who. I mean, we're talking Demba Ba showed up, for goodness sake. Shea Given, yourself as well. What's the mood among the fans with Eddie? Are they very much behind him or are there still one or two grumbles? No, I think everyone's behind him. I think they can see with the club, obviously, the ownership coming in. I thought Amanda spoke very well. You know, but the fans have heard so far, they're very excited. You see the first home game. They've not had an atmosphere for no. many years like that. I'm going back to probably when Rafa was there then before that it was probably Bobby Robson before you had that proper atmosphere feeling where there's a good feel factor you're going to go there believe we're going to win every game I think this is now a time where yes it's going to be a long process it ain't going to happen overnight it could be two three years before things kick off again but the main thing for me this season is keeping the football club up that's the first and foremost about anything getting to January in a position where you can attract players who actually want to come to Newcastle and play. Don't be doing it, no disrespect to Queen's Park Rangers here, but bringing yeah. in players who you know, came from massive wages and they didn't care if the team was going to get relegated because they bounce off to another club. Yeah. The players who have got to come to Newcastle, making sure they buy into the culture, what it means to come to Newcastle. And family plays, plays a massive part for that because I played with some top international players, massive names in the game, but when they were there, the families, they didn't settle. They didn't like it in Newcastle. So you've got to make sure you've got players. You've got to do a, a good background check on them, making sure they're right fit for the club. Just on that, Steve, because, and again, we, we spoke after you came on a couple of weeks back. We went out and, and we had a good chat. And the one thing that kind of always struck me with you and about you, proper pro, like a proper pro. You wouldn't cut corners. You were there early. You were there late. You did all that you could to be a professional football player. When you say that about the families, and it's so important that they settle, because they're the 
intangibles. We don't see that. We can drive the data points. We can look at the analysis. What we don't know is that perhaps a player has an ill mother, an ill father, maybe going through a divorce. He's got an ill kid. We don't see that in the newspapers. What at a professional level, maybe even at Newcastle, would you guys be aware of any of your teammates if they were having personal issues? And when you go above and beyond to try and help them get through them? I think as players back in the day, yes, you'd see that they weren't settled. But I don't think there's enough players in the dressing room that would go to the manager and and speak to them. Because sometimes all it takes is the manager maybe to go and speak to the player, give them a few days off, spend time with the family. I heard uh, John Terry recently. Yes. And it was was a great... Because I've seen that in my career as well. Players were training bad, weren't confident, weren't enjoying it, weren't playing well, getting a lot of pressure, a lot of of stick from the crowd. All they needed was a little bit of time off. I think we had an international break. A few players flew back to see the families. They came back completely different. And in football now, it's understanding your player. Yeah. I think man management now is huge. And Eddie's got a big thing on his hands now with players who have probably been out of favour with Steve Bruce, getting them feeling love again. And that's all it is with professional footballers. There's a lot of insecure footballers out there. It's just getting that confidence into them. And it's about understanding which players probably needs a little bit of time off. Mm. Listen, have the family settled? No. Why have they not? Why is the family not settled? Does he need time to go back to where he's from? Go and see them. All right, listen, have a week off. We'll see you then. But I'll tell you what, Mourinho did it years ago, if you remember. Yeah. He gave, um, I'm trying to think of which player it was now, some time off to go away with the family. But listen, you owe me now. Yeah. I've done that with you. And he come yeah. back different player. I remember Fergie did it with Peter Schmeichel in the season that United won the treble, 98-99. I think he sent him off to the Caribbean, if memory serves me correctly. He sent him off five days, just get away. He had made a rick in the Olympic Stadium uh, stadion against Bayern Munich. Made a terrible mistake. Giovanni Elber scored late on, 92nd minute. It was 2-2. Fergie came away from that and said, listen, Peter go to the Caribbean, take five days off, clear the mind, came back and of course he played a key part in winning the treble. And, and I wonder, Steve, from all the managers you, you played under, who was the best at that? Bobby. It Sir was. Bobby Robson. The amount of times that I would go into his office, I mentioned it last time, I told the players I'm going to go and see him, I'm not happy, I want to be playing. I was only a young kid at the time, but I had a chip on my shoulder believing I should be playing. So I would knock on his door and he could see that I wasn't happy sitting in his office and he just looks at me he goes how's your dad son got completely off the game of football starts talking about family I come up his office his arms around me I'm going down the corridor I think it was Gary Speed at the time go I see you got your point out there Tails <laughs> and I didn't get any words out not one word out but that is about man management understanding your player which player needs that bit of loving mm. especially in this modern day now we're talking about mental health it's huge in the football game now the pressure on the social media, the criticism that players are taking. When you don't win games, that's what you remember. Every game you play, you're reminding your last game, whether you play well or not. Results game business. This is what we are now. Given the fact that you played in an era where, and again, we're not going that far back. I mean, for goodness sake, Steve, you could still be playing. What are you, 36? 35, yeah. 30, I'm cheaper if you're 35. You absolutely. I must look older, eh? Yeah, you absolutely. <laughs> could, must have been a tough paper round, Chief. You could absolutely still be playing, right? When you look at where the game has moved to now, social media, probably just at the back end of your career, it's exploded exponentially. When you look at what players are today and the pressures that are on them, do you envy them? It's difficult. Yeah, I understand. I think a lot of people, I remember the back end five years ago, walking in the change room, you know, you see the players on the phones all the time. And like I've said, I think last time, 10 nice things, that one negative thing in some player's head, that's it. Yeah. That's in their grin in their head. They can't get away from it. And it's just that negative mindset. So a lot of people don't know how to deal with that. And I think that's a big, big problem with a lot of football, especially who are out of favour. Because what you'll find in the modern game now, when a player doesn't play, he's going to hope that his team loses because he's wanting to play. To get in. So that's what you're gonna have to deal with now. Not just that, you've got agents in the ear. 
So agents, you've got family in the ear. This all plays a big factor in the professional modern day era. Wallace kind of going on. Of all the players that you played with, Steve, who, who was the player that just got better? The more you threw at him, the more you booed, the more you threw vitriol, the more you made obscene gestures. Of all the players, who did you always think, he's my man to go into battle with? There's a few. I've had a few. I think... Um, Shearer? He's always at, he's at the top of the list. Nothing, his mindset's just different than any of the players. Was it? Was he, it? Is it because he's a leader? We talk about leadership qualities here. I think for me, the likes of Johan Kabai, he was always, people were slating out, can you do it week in, week out? You know, can you do it? Is he soft, soft touch? He always had that negative people in his, in his head, especially early doors. But he kept delivering. Always wanted him on the pitch. When he's on the pitch, we felt you know, win the game. We talk about the guy we just met, Demba Bar. The criticism that he came, people said, oh, listen, he had a rod through his uh, shin, yeah. his, his ligament, he's finished. The people that in his ear all the time, and he'll tell yourself, it's multiple, people just doubted him. Yeah. Coming to the football club, can you, you know, take the big shirt, Alan Shearer, they all compare, he says, listen, I'm Denver Bar, I'm my own player. And I tell you what he delivered for us that season. But you talk about the Gary Speeds of the world, yeah. you know, we do talk about leadership qualities. You know, I think for me now, I'll go back to the days when you've got that core of leadership, the Shea Givens. Jonathan Woodgate, Gary Speed, Alan Shearer, men, they're like managers on the pitch, mm. understanding the game. I think now you look in the Premier League, how many teams can you tell me now have got a core of that experience, leadership qualities, the fear factor of the old school Manchester United, you know, the Schmeichels, Keen. the Vidic, Vidic, Rooney's, Ronaldo's, the gigs, <laughs> that fear factor. I don't see enough of that now in the game. You know, we'll go with the Arsenal. Look at Arsenal now. I mean, Arsenal, I think I saw a stat. We spoke about this a couple of weeks back. I think they're the sixth youngest squad in the top five leagues in Europe. So if we take England, Italy, Spain, Germany, France, the sixth youngest. So there's definitely something there. But again, I look at them a little bit brittle for me. Look at Man United. You know, Harry Maguire plays in your position. Are you a fan of Harry, Steve? Honestly. In the English game, the centre-halves you've got, he's probably the top one we've got. In the English game, I think with obviously John Stones, I think he is there and he's under a lot of pressure because you're going back to the Rio Ferdinand and the Vidiches. Yeah. For me, you can't compare them to that. It's just like when you talk about Manchester United, you've got to be talking about they've got to be up for the Premier League, the Champions, they've got to be winning it. That's the, the stature of that football club. The identity there, you've got the old schools like I talked about, Vidiches, Rios, the Keens, the Scholes, the Giggses, the Ronaldo, the Rooney's, Van Nistelrooy's. I don't see that in Manchester United. I don't see that fear factor. When, t when we used to go to Old Trafford, it was a nightmare to go. Honestly, now I, I see teams it's go Anfield. there. It's Anfield now, isn't it? It's, it is. It's Anfield. It's, it's Man City. It's Chelsea. They're the three sides I think you look at. Loads of love coming in for you. We've had Dan. Dan, I think must be a journalist from the Wall Street Journal listening in. Dan, lovely to have your company this evening. Fishing for quotes from you, my man, because he says, talk about Liverpool's lack of transfer spend, please. With their attacking players ageing, this is according to Dan, not me, they need to spend. Now, it's not lost on me that I know Manny, Salah, Firmino, no spring chickens, but 29, 29 and 30 respectively, I don't think we'll be pulling out the violins anytime soon. Absolutely not. I think with, uh, when especially when they keep delivering like they have exactly. season on season, Salah, is he looking like he's aging? I don't think absolutely so. Absolutely not. I think maybe in a few more years and if they're not delivering, then fair enough, but at this moment in time, Absolutely not. And I think that's the scary thing. And Peter's been in touch. He says, first time listener for extra time and a great guest. Talks great sense. Why aren't you going into management? That's Peter's question, not mine. Any reason you're just slowly building? Tw 20 years, Chris. I've had that. 20 years of football. I want that little time off at the moment. Enjoy family time. Relax. 
Um, no rush, right? You're 35. That's what I mean. So I'll take this time off now for this year um, to enjoy the fitness side of things. Um, and then I'll be slowly going into the academies and then we'll start to look at it. Genuinely though, you do think that your future is management? Definitely coaching. I think start with coaching, understanding, uh, working with you know, managers, spend time going abroad into Germany, Holland, Spain, not just spend time in England. You know, I like to have a little venture around and I think with the modern day, the way it's kind of moving, you've got to go with the times and you can't be stuck in your ways. Like I've seen a lot of managers, they just kind of stay at one spot. I think you've got to understand different cultures as well. So for me, I've been very fortunate and very lucky. MLS, the A-League, mm -hmm. coming there, I've played in Premier League, Championship, League One. Started my career when I was 17 in League Two Wickham to understand the experience instead of playing reserve team football to get out in the big, the big was, was that you that pushed that move to Wickham? It was, yeah. I think Bob Robson had got a phone call from Tony Adams. And yes, he asked me, the, he asked Tony. me, listen, yeah. So he's, that was his, um, wow. So the phone call came through and it was like, do I want to play in reserves against players who particularly didn't want to be playing in the reserves? So you were 17. 17, yeah. And Tony Adams, who, yeah. let's be frank about it, one of the best centre backs of his generation, calls up Sir Bobby and says, that young lad, Stephen, I want him. Yeah. Wow. So as a, obviously as an idol as well, I was like amazed. I was, you're just never going to stop me from going there and, going there for a month and still to this day keep in touch with uh, Tony yeah. Adams yeah so it's great obviously he's followed my career as well I had him in my box and uh, we got winning the championship he came to a game Sheffield Wednesday and uh, to have him there was, was an unbelievable feeling for myself so you were 17 Tony Adams takes a punt on you and did you start how, you were there a month yeah every game played 17 years of Loved age it. Uh, the fans of Wicking were incredible got the fans play of the month um, and that <laughs> gave me that confidence of coming back and wanting to be in the uh, league but that's for me understanding what it meant playing in the league to toughening yeah. up you know I was this like young lad at the time who just been playing reserves I wanted to go out there understanding that's what I understand about the mortgages of players where they relied on bonuses to, to pay for that and that was kind of the start of it, the footballing world having all these managers that I've had learning from different different ones and it was an incredible kind of experience myself taking their knowledge the best sessions I've had I've always kept knowledge of it and I'll use that in my favour for later Love on down it. the line I always and, and again the last time you were in Steve we spoke about the fact that you were still a young man when you moved to MLS what were you tw late 20s? Uh, 30 you were at 30 yeah, 30 to go in there probably went maybe two years too early okay. but my main thing was uh, getting games under my belt because uh, Newcastle last few years there with the I snapped Achilles um, my game times uh, obviously went down and I wanted to be playing so I played what 15 games I think in um, a short space of time and that's when Mick McCarthy came uh, along asked me to, to obviously break a contract in the uh, the MLS to go to the championship but I wonder we and again I, I'm guilty of it we perpetuate this kind of notion that the Premier League is all conquering and it probably is right now you look at the top three Liverpool, Chelsea and City for me they're the three favourites throw a blanket over them for the UEFA Champions League this season we saw Chelsea and City of course in the last in last season's Champions League. What, however, in Major League Soccer, down under as well, going down to, to, to New Zealand, what did you learn? Is the Premier League as is as all-conquering as we, the media, will, will perpetuate? Or did you learn things from the MLS that you think, well, the Premier League could absolutely do well with coming out here and seeing what these guys do? As a professional footballer, when you leave school at 16 years old and you go into the, in the footballing world, everything gets done for you. I think the biggest thing that helped me a lot was going to Peterborough first, before the, uh, the, the um, A-League. When I went to Peterborough, I started doing things for myself. It wasn't all about, listen, everything's done for you. You gotta like, look after yourself, doing the extras, doing the change rooms, doing the stuff I probably should have done at 16 years old, being the YTS, cleaning boots and stuff like that. I was very fortunate I missed the academy, mm. went straight into the reserves and first team, so you kind of get people to do that. 
I think when I went across to the A League, I didn't want people to see me as Stephen Taylor, the, the player who played Newcastle United. I want to get tra- exactly the same. So it was trained harder than any young player. I want them to, when I finish like I did now, and what I said to them in the change room before I left was, I hope you remember me as a guy who trained you know, my ass off, give it 100% effort every training in every game. I want you to remember me for that instead of playing too long. And you remember th- thinking he should have retired two years ago. Yeah. So that was my kind of motivation, going out there, playing against players who were kind of, you know, thinking that's Stephen Taylor. I'm gonna, I want to try and get past him today. I want to kind of make him look bad. So my fire in my belly was that. That kept me driving, and I wanted to keep playing because at 29 years old, 28 years old, I had medical staff in Newcastle telling me, listen, if you get to 31, you've had a good career, you've done well because you've had a few injuries, you snapped both Achilles, dislocated two shoulders, snapped your bicep tendon in your hamstring. Oh. The amount of times I had said, take an insurance job, go and take an insurance job. You were being told that? Yeah, so for myself, as, and people who know me, my mentality, there's not a chance in hell, I'll go out on my own terms. And that's why I come back from every injury, I'll do that. And I never had the same injury again. But going across to the A-League, it prolonged my career, mm, sorting out my diet, nutrition, playing every game out there. It was the best thing I've ever done. And uh, yeah, I think it prolonged another four years of my career. They don't make them like Stephen Taylor now, that's for sure. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 